All right. Last time, we were looking at chapter 7, where uh, Daniel had the vision of the four winds of heaven stirring up the sea, the great sea. And we talked about the components of that vision and mapped out those symbols. And so I'm not going to repeat that here, but we really took a close look at And those symbols do make sense, especially in light of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, or the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, detailing the times of the Gentiles till the end. And um, all the other things that we talked about, we also know that the sea is representative of the nations, the general nations of the world. So it was stirring up the sea. We're going to continue along those lines now. We also talked about Babylon. We looked at some interesting history of Babylon. And if you remember, if you were here last time, the a website of a travel agency that actually gave some history of Babylon. So it's all there. History corroborates what was going on there. We looked at what it is today and how we're proceeding. So now we're proceeding down the statue. We also talked about the Romans under the direction of Emperor Titus stormed in and decimated the Jews in the city of Jerusalem. And these are the people that are going to come again in the end of the age in the Roman Empire coming again. So we talked about that because what history will repeat itself. But in the tribulation, it's going to be far, far worse. And the temple will be here again as well as we know that. We talked about the siege. And we can move on. At this juncture, what I just mentioned is when Daniel talks about the people of the ruler that shall come. While we're talking about this, if you will, in your Bibles, please turn to Matthew 24 and verse 15. Let's talk about the people of the ruler to come. The people of the ruler to come. These were absolutely horrible to the Jews in AD 70. And of course, we know that this is the Romans, and you can see it here. Matthew 24, verse 15. We're going to read verses 15 through 22. So when you see standing in the holy place, the holy place is the holy of holies, quote-unquote, of a temple. Well, the temple has got to be there at this time. He is talking to the Jews, and he's also writing, now think of this, writing to the Jews more specifically, because he is talking about the tribulation time. He is talking about that, which means a couple of things here. His church will not be here. We will be gone. It will be the end of the church age, and we will be raptured before that. This is also a witness to the Jews who will be coming to Christ during the tribulation time, the first half and the second half, which will be worse. They will have Bibles. They will start reading the New Testament as they're called, and this will speak directly to them at that time. So just think of that. Think of the audience this is intended for. This is for them, intended for our information, but more for the people who are alive at the time this happens. So having set that stage... When you see standing in the holy place of the third temple, the abomination that causes desolation, now here's, what it, here's the key, spoken through Daniel the prophet, or spoken by the prophet Daniel, let the reader, us, understand, and that's what we're doing. You have to study the book of Daniel. You have to study the history. You have to know this statue. We need to understand it as you realize if you're here. It's important. This is not optional for Christians. I keep stressing that. We know that, that there are so many Christians who just really just dwell on the New Testament and Christ and Him crucified. A lot of Paul's epistles and some of the other letters are in the New Testament. They don't really interpret those as well when they don't understand the Old Testament. This is the key here. Spoken through Daniel the prophet, let the reader understand. Verse 16, then let those at that time who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now we're talking about the seven-year tribulation, and we know that that's split into two halves. The first half, and then the great tribulation, which is from three and a half years in to the end of the seven-year time frame. This is speaking about the last half, which is what Jesus says is the most horrendous time 
by far that has ever been in history on this earth and will never ever be again that's the second half so this is what he's talking about the abomination of desolation which by the way is when the antichrist moves into the temple and stands in there and says and proclaims himself as god that's when he's saying to the jews get ready to flee and if you look in the book of revelation where the flood comes and satan's chasing the jews and they're they're told to flee to a wilderness and they're given the wings of an eagle and they're flown probably to petra which is in jordan we've talked about that before but this is the context here so it says here this is the urgency the sense of urgency that he's talking about when this abomination of desolation takes place three and a half years into the tribulation which earmarks the time of jacob's trouble the second half then let those who are in judea flee to the mountains let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house you got to go you have no time to grab your coat or your hat verse 18 let no one in the field go back to get his cloak see i just said that how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers because they're not going to find it very easy to travel it's going to be a lot harder for women who are pregnant and or with children small children but this is what he's talking about here and pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath because it's even harder to travel in the winter. And the Sabbath, because of the laws that will be reinstated at that time of keeping the Sabbath holy as far as the rabbis or the Pharisees are concerned, it's going to make it very tough to travel. Verse 21, for then, then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, now being that time, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one, no flesh, the King James Version, would be saved alive. But for the sake of the elect who are there at that time, those days will be shortened. And of course, they have to be saved out of that because then the millennium has to come and human beings have to be in the millennium when Jesus Christ comes and the third temple is obliterated and the fourth temple is built as we've talked about a lot here in this class ezekiel's temple the fourth temple which jesus will either build himself and or specify for those around him to build for him and he will inhabit that temple but he has to have human beings and the remnant of the jews who will come out of the tribulation into the millennium let's go back to our friend hippolytus the pastor of the church in rome i mentioned him last time we met together uh, one of the early church fathers who lived from 170 A.D. and died as a martyr in 236 A.D. He said this, but the fourth beast, the beast with the iron teeth, is dreadful and terrible. And that maps into the very end times here where you see the iron and clay. This is the quote from Hippolytus. The fourth beast, who is dreadful and terrible, had iron teeth, claws of brass. Who then are meant by this but the Romans? Look at this. This is the point, and Hippolytus knew this. The ten horns are mapped into the ten toes. Remember we talked about the ten horns in Daniel's vision? These map right in to the ten toes and nations in the statue here. So if you look at the ten toes, iron and clay, if you remember, these are the toes which are holding up that entire statue of the times of the Gentiles are iron mixed with clay, and they don't cleave together very well. This is where the Antichrist will come to the fore at that time. We know that this is the end of days, period, because it follows in chapter 7, verses 9 to 14. So if you want to go to Daniel, chapter 7, verses 9 through 14, let's read that. And I am going to read this in the Amplified Version, so you can follow along in your own version if you like. And it says here, I kept looking until thrones were placed for the assessors with the judge, 
capital J. And the Ancient of Days, God, the Eternal Father, took his seat. Again, this is at the very end. Whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame. Its wheels were, bur wheels were burning fire. Remember we talked about Ezekiel's vision, and even Isaiah's vision, when they saw what I call the portable throne room of God? Here it is again, but this time it's in heaven. The wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, and ten thousands times ten thousands rose up and stood before him. The judge, capital J, was seated, and the court was in session, and the books were open. Now, we know that there's a book of life. We know that there's other books that are similar, but everyone who must be judged it's going to be looked to see if they're found in the book of life because they have a book of life that is physical life that everybody who ever lived is in there but the book of life of the lamb if you're not in there you're done and this is what this is talking about here this is what is called the great white throne judgment the books are open i looked then because of the sound of the great words which the horn was speaking i watched until the beast was slain and its body destroyed now the beast is the antichrist and given over to be burned with fire. And as, this is not the great white throne judgment, that's the final judgment. And as for the rest of the beasts, their power of dominion was taken away, yet their lives were prolonged, for the duration of their lives was fixed for a season at a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, on the clouds of heaven, the one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and presented before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and kingdom with all peoples, nations, and tongues, the languages that serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. We're talking about Jesus being granted the title deed to the earth. So, please turn now to a companion scripture, Revelation 12, Revelation chapter 12, verse 13. Let's tie this together with a description that John gives us about the beast and its horns. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, this is not Revelation, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Now, if you know the book of Revelation, that most of us do, we know that the main factor here is the woman, who is Israel, and the male child is Jesus Christ. The woman was given two wings of an eagle, like I was saying before, a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, which really should be Petra, if you know what Petra is in the Jordan where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, that is specifically telling us three and a half years. So we know that this is the beginning of the last half of the tribulation, which is called the Great Tribulation of Jacob's Trouble. We know that this is when Satan is cast down, and he is really angry, and he's going after the elect, the Jews, and all those who have taken Christ. But specifically, it's talking about the Jews here. So they've been given the woman, Israel, the remnant, at that time in the tribulation, the wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time. Out of the serpent's reach, then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river, to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring, because now she's protected. Now everybody else is going to be there, and he's going to go after them. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads. Now, going back to you, compare this to what we read in Daniel, chapter 7. With ten crowns on his horns, and each had a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, 
Hmm. But have feet like those of a bear, compare the symbolism that we studied the last time in January chapter 7, and a mouth like a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power, the Antichrist, and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. They're going to follow this beast because they're going to say, matter of fact, it's right here, and I'll get to it in a second. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. Now think of this, the anti-trinity. The Satan does nothing new. Satan does nothing new. So he's got a copy of everything God does and everything God is, at least he's going to try. If God is a trinity, which he is, we have God the Father, Jesus Christ is the Word who became flesh among us, right? Who was the Word became Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, which is our comforter and also our, our uh, intercessor as well as Jesus, but also our teacher and so forth. Well, there's got to be an unholy trinity to mirror that. So if we say that Satan is the anti-God, the Father, then the beast would be the anti-Jesus Christ. That's why he's called the anti-Christ. So the relationship between the Father and Jesus Christ is going to be the relationship that Satan is going to build between himself and this human being. When Jesus came and he's human, well, then the Antichrist is also going to be human, indwelled by the Father, and also like Jesus was indwelled by the Father. And uh, it's also, remember, Jesus said many times, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Well, the Antichrist is going to be the representation of the anti-God on this earth. Very simple. You see how it works. It's very poetic. And finally, the false prophet which will be probably the Pope, definitely the Catholic Church, and probably, most probably the Pope at that time, who would be pointing to the beast, who will be almost like the John the Baptist, but he'll also be really playing the part of the anti-Holy Spirit. So hopefully that all flows for you, because that's exactly what he does here. It's not really rocket science. It's pretty straightforward. So if you know that, we could read it here. Men worship the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, like men should worship Jesus Christ, because the Father gave him all authority. See how it works? But they do that, the ones who don't believe. Men worship the dragon because he gave authority to the beast, and they also worship the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war with him? We say the same thing about our true Jesus Christ. Who is like our Lord Jesus Christ? If he closes the door, no man can open it. And if he opens the door, no man can shut it. And who can make war with Jesus Christ? Nobody. Right? If God before us, who can be against us? This is the same thing that these hell-bound people who worship their anti-God and their anti-Christ and their anti-Holy Spirit are going to go to what I call the anti-hell. And if you think about it, think about it, hell is going to be Satan basically getting what he wants in the opposite way. He's going to get a, an eternal place like an anti-heaven that he will rule over and they'll all be in torment where we will go to heaven where God and Jesus will rule over that and we will be in full bliss for eternity. So you see, that's why I say, this is just me. The Bible doesn't specifically say this. But I look at both, the profiles of both heaven and hell. And I just got to tell you, hell is definitely the anti-heaven with the anti-God, the anti-Christ, and the anti-Holy Spirit ruling there forever and ever, totally separated from the true God, the true heaven, and all of us who are with him. So think about that. Revelation 13, verse 5. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months, three and a half years. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And again, this is not the church. This is the tribulation saints, which is different. They are saved, but they are not the bride of Christ. Very different status. Just remember that. You need to understand that. It's not us. 
It is them. That's why anybody who's saved during the tribulation is going to be saved on probably pain of death more than most of us are. And they will not have the Eve to Jesus' Adam's status. They will not be bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh counted as that. They will not be the bride. So that's something that's important. Okay, so Lois is saying, I think more of the counterfeit anti gives it too much credit. Yeah, that's true. Counterfeit's even better. You're right. Absolutely. Yep. But I'm glad we understand what we're talking about here because it's very important to see what God really means here when he's reading this thing. It just gives it more power. Verse 7 of Revelation 13. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. He's going to rule the planet. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. And they won't worship him because they love him. Just like we saw in the book of Daniel and in other places where, well, let's say Nebuchadnezzar in particular, where a king will say, it's a law now that I'm going to set up a statue or something to, uh, to me. And then when you hear music playing throughout the kingdom, you must stop and bow to that statue and worship. And those who don't are going to be killed. And maybe their family will also be decimated. So people worshipped out of coercion and not necessarily worshipped out of love. So when you see this, it doesn't mean they all love the Antichrist. And that's why the Antichrist is going to have to have a very powerful army. And a very powerful entourage of bodyguards because he is not going to be loved that much by most people. Um, all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. Although all, listen to this, remember I talked about those books. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb. The book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. So I hope that puts a little bit of a capper on the symbolism that we're talking about and the gravity of what it means. Even Jesus is talking about it and Revelation talks about it where it's pointing solidly to what for us in alive at this time is just before us. I mean, this is how important it is to spread the gospel to your family, your friends, because most people alive right now with what's going on around us, and I know I've talked a lot about prophecy. I don't do it here so much, but uh, those of you who know me very well know that this is not a game. We are at the very doors with the peace plan coming and all of the convulsions in this earth with the weather patterns and the earthquakes. I mean, how much more do we need to see before we can, we're convinced? And most Christians aren't even watching. But we must know where we are in time. Not setting a date, but we must know. So most of the people we know are going to either be raptured or, if not Christian, they're going to go through the tribulation. Prepare them somehow. That's what we must do. So let's finish up Daniel chapter 7. Uh, we should be able to make real sense of all this now as God intended. So let's go to Daniel chapter 7 verse 15. Still talking about this vision with all these uh, symbols of these beasts, which we just really detailed. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 15. I, Daniel, was troubled in the spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this in his vision. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Verse 19 of chapter 7. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left is most powerful of the beasts in his vision. 
I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes like a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And we talked about these symbols when these animals in these symbols are replaced with human components and what they mean. So we don't have to go over that again because we did. And you can see exactly that the little horn is the Antichrist. He's going to be a human being. That's why he's got the eyes of a man and a mouth, a pig mouth. But he speaks great things, or boastfully. Verse 21, As I watched, this horn was waging war against the tents and defeating them. Just imagine this in your mind's eye. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. That's talking about the millennium. Verse 7, chapter 23, uh, chapter seven, verse 23, there we go. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. This is what's happening soon. I'm not even going to get into all I want to say because we just don't have time. And this is not a prophecy update if you're ever interested. Because if you're following it closely, what's going on in this country with the leaders in this country and around the world, especially with France and Macron and Russia and Iran and our president and what he's doing and Jared Kushner, who's a Kabbalistic Jew and all of this peace plan that's coming up. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. So I hope you do. I hope you really are studying. I hope you're fascinated because it's a privilege to be alive at such a time as this. But anyway, I digress. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones who will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and laws. Now, side note here. You can't change the set times and laws if they don't exist. What's being talked about here is that with the third temple will be reestablished all of the Mosaic laws. All of the laws, the Levitical priesthood and what they do, the sacrificial system completely will be reinstated. And it's going to be a wonderful thing, so the Jews will think, until three and a half years into the tribulation, when the Antichrist moves in to the temple and basically says, I am your Savior, I am Messiah, I am God, therefore you do not need to do these sacrifices anymore because I am here to pay for your sins. That's what the Antichrist is going to do. And they're going to realize... This is all a setup. Then he's going to change the set times and laws that the peace covenant, the rebuilding of the third temple, and he and others who enable that, as he rises to power and re-enable and, and the Temple Institute, which is an organization that has, and I've told you this before, everything is ready. And I stood right next to the actual golden menorah that will be put in that temple when I was in Israel a few years ago. But they are ready right now. And by the way, as a side note, just as an interesting thing, this might interest you. The way it seems, this reconstituted Sanhedrin, which is driving all this right now, and the no-hide laws and all this stuff, but what they're actually saying is, the way they may have to do it, and I'm just going to tell you this, is they may first set up a tabernacle, just like David had. They may do that first. They're going to set up a tabernacle because they are going to find the true Ark of the Covenant. You ever hear of the Copper Scrolls that they found? The copper scrolls found among the Dead Sea Scrolls are a treasure map, and it's nothing less than a treasure map, and they're decoding it now. 
And they are finding that it's going to lead. They may have already found some of it, but they're not saying it. It's leading to the temple treasures. And the Ark of the Covenant, they are pretty sure they know where it is. And so if they bring out the original Ark of the Covenant, it's not going to go into a museum. It's going to go into a tabernacle, and then they're going to work on building a temple. Just imagine the world when it sees the ability to place the actual Ark of the Covenant into a tabernacle, and the whole world is going to think they're going to worship God. I mean, imagine the Jews around the world. They're going to think it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. Uh, I know I took a little side jaunt there, but it's really important to know what's going on right now. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set laws and times, which he will, because they'll be reestablished, and then he'll stop them three and a half years in. And the saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and a half a time. There we go again. Three and a half years in, he moves into the temple, he stops the laws and the sacrifices, and then the saints, both the converted Jew and the Gentiles, will be handed over to him, but mostly the saints, being the Jews there, will be handed over to him for that final three and a half years. But... And I always love when it says, but, Daniel chapter 7, verse 26, but the court will sit and his power will be taken away completely, destroyed forever. Amen. Then, but then, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, this whole statue, all of the kingdoms, all of these, all of the Gentiles rule. Then the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, Jesus Christ, the millennium, and then moving into the everlasting kingdom where we see a new heaven and a new earth which wraps up the book of Revelation and the whole Bible ends at that point. And all rulers will worship and obey him in the millennium. Hallelujah. So this is what this is talking about, and this is what Daniel packs in, and this is just in chapter 7. And we are here right now, folks. We are here right now. We have completed chapter 7, and you see the chronology. The next chapter, chapter 8, is actually in order. But let's, let's take a step back for a second here. We have to look at it, and those of you who've been with me for a while now understand that there are three types of people, three people groups that the Bible speaks of. It's actually pretty simple. And those of you, again, who know me pretty well, uh, who we've studied together, know where I'm going with this because it's important to understand in context. It's basically the Jews, Israelites, and the Christians, those who are Christ's, and everyone else. And that's it. And everybody who's ever born in this world will fall into at least one of those buckets when they're born, and they may change buckets, except if you're a Jew, where you can change into the Christian bucket and still be of Jewish descent. So everybody has the opportunity to move into the Christian bucket, if you will, of people. But nobody is born a Christian. You're either born a Jew or a Gentile, and you become a Christian at some point. But there are three main books that describe the history, the past and future, the general history of those people groups. And for the Jew, it is Ezekiel. For the Christian, it really is the book of Revelation. And for the Gentile, we see it's the book of Daniel. And again, if you look at the statue, this shows the progression. This is the times of the Gentile. So we have to understand that this book is dedicated to laying out the whole timeline as under the Babylonian system, the Gentile rule, the Gentile rule in its religious and economic prowess. And that's what we're talking about here. I'm just going to read this. In Luke chapter 21, verses 20 through 24, we are told, When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, 
you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Three and a half years in the tribulation. Let those in the city get out. And let those in the country not enter the city of Jerusalem. For this is the time of the punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. And by the way, documented in Daniel and Revelation. And other places, but mostly those two places. How dreadful it will be in those days of pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all nations. By the way, this happened before, right? This is, seems to be the MO that God uses to punish his people. He disperses them among the heathen. And he takes them back. And right now we see them back in the land, but they're coming out of many years of dispersion. We saw that with Assyria when the, the northern tribes were taken by the Assyrians. And then finally, we saw the southern kingdom taken by Babylon, which is what we really just talked about for quite a while now. And then we saw it again when Jesus said that they were going to be dispersed. They were going to be kicked out of Jerusalem, and they did. They were in AD 70 and after that, the Maccabeans and all that stuff, and they, they were gone. That Masada, it's horrible, horrible. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled right here in that statue. So we know that Daniel spoke a number of times that Jerusalem had been and will again be sacked. Now listen to this also. Just think of this. Again, those of you who have been studying with me know this. The book of Daniel was really written in two languages. It's not just all Hebrew. It was written in both Hebrew and Aramaic. Chapters 2 through 7 are actually written in Aramaic. Now, why is this so? Why is there a mixture in the book of Daniel as the only book that has really this mixture? It seems to be because even in the early times of that book, when it was written as a scrolls, before the printing press and various translations and wide distributions of it were even possible, that God wanted to be sure because this is the timeline for the Gentile rule. It's the timeline for the whole Gentile rule. He wanted to be sure that both Israelite, who read and spoke Hebrew, and Gentile in the day, the common language is Aramaic, would be able to have a witness to the times of the Gentiles. This is how important it is for us to understand the book of Daniel. I hope you see that now as we've been studying it. Aramaic was an everyday language. Sort of like English is really around the world. I mean, English is the de facto language of business and everything else around the world. Aramaic was kind of that way too in the known world at that time. It also continued, as you know, into the days of Jesus Christ. That's how long it had been around. It had a very long, long lifespan and was very widely used over a very vast area of what is now Europe and, of course, the Middle East. The four major empires predicts or shows in the book of Daniel with Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, and Rome, including the revived Roman Empire, down with iron and clay. We're going to talk more about those iron and clay feet in a, at some other time. I think that you're going to find that very interesting. But I got a question, and it's going to be a little rhetorical, but think of this. You see that the statue here starts with the head of gold, which is the Babylonian Empire in 606 BC. But there were Gentile empires before that. Like I just mentioned, Assyria. And also, you know that the whole start of the Jewish race really was when they were in bondage in Egypt. And that was before the Babylonian Empire, all of it, right? So why isn't it there? Why isn't it there? These two world empires predate Babylon, so why aren't they there? Because the focus of the book of Daniel is the times of the Gentiles as it relates to the captivity, the punishment, the dispersing, and the final glorification of Israel as the head of nations 
when Jesus Christ, their Messiah, returns and sets up his kingdom, and the remnant sees him as their true Messiah. This is all focused, even though it is about the Gentile powers, the Gentile rule, the Babylonian system under Satan. The focus of the Bible of any nations or any peoples or any object of history or anything, it always focuses on how it interacts with the Jewish people, with Israel. That's it. That's what the Bible's about. Even in the New Testament, it's really about that. It's about the Gentiles being grafted in. And of course, there's prophecies of all of that, the church age, the new covenant in the Old Testament. But nonetheless, the hub of the Bible are the people of Israel. And that's why we need to know that. So if it's focusing on that, then those other two large empires don't count. Because really, it all started, the times of the Gentiles all started with Nimrod, who founded Babylon. And when God confused the languages, and really that's where we are today, we're at the tail end of it where Babylon is being resurrected. And there is no more confusion of languages with technology, and um, the whole thing is coming to a, a, coming to fruition. So the pause marker has been taken out, and uh, Satan is going to be able to complete his plan on time, not too soon, as it would have happened if God didn't stop it in those days. Okay, with chapter 7 under our belt, as it were, let's start on Daniel chapter 8. Just as the head of gold starts the timeline of Gentile domination, which you just said, from Babylon forward down to the end where we are right now, chapter 8 brings us back to a Jewish perspective. The scene shifts to none other than Alexander the Great, and there is so much to be said about him. When I studied to present this Bible study the first time, which is quite a few years ago now, when I was studying in real time to prepare these lessons, I found myself going through history, because there's a lot of history about Alexander the Great and what he did. He only lived 33 years, but he was quite a man. And the things he did, if you read, especially in the accounts of Josephus and other historical accounts, he was incredible. I've got to tell you a few more things about him, either now or next time we meet, that you'll find very interesting. But he is a key figure in the complete world history, especially in setting up, how do I want to put this, the configuration of history so that it could move forward down that statue. The Grecian Empire, right? The Empire of Bronze really is that empire of Alexander the Great. That's really what we're talking about here. We are now at the cusp of Greece taking the reins of the world, which is the Empire of Bronze right here. So we've talked about Babylon. We know that they were when Belshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall, that's when Cyrus the Mede came in. Well, that's just Darius, but we'll get into more of that later. Then we talked about the prophecies for the very end time. And now we're going to talk about the next layer down toward our current day, which is the Grecian Empire. Basically, Alexander the Great's job, if he, as it were, was to Hellenize the entire world. And he did. He prepared it to segue into the Roman Empire, which we just talked a lot about. Alexander the Great was a Gentile conqueror, definitely Gentile. But he was specifically used by God, it seems, to set up events in the land of Israel. And we'll talk more about that as we go. So, again, being back at this very Israelite-specific point of view now, let's go to Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1. So we look at the chronology. You'll see chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and then 7 and 8. And then it goes back to 5, 6, 9, and then 10, 11, and 12. Keep your eye on that to know where you are in the chronological flow of history. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. And again, if you look, 
8 is chronologically after 7, so he's talking about after this vision we just talked about with all these beasts and so forth. Now he's saying he's having another one after that. And in this vision, or it says in my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. Now, I don't have a map up here, and I don't have one to show you, but if you look at a map of the Middle East and you look at Israel, if you go to the right, you're going to see Jordan and then Syria. You go to the right, you're going to see Iraq and then Iran. And in Iran, if you go to the northwest, where it almost interfaces with Iraq, you're going to see the Caspian Sea. And below that is an area biblically called Elam. Now, again, when we've studied, and you who've been with me a long time ago, know that I talked about way back when Abraham had the battle with the four kings in Genesis. And one of them was the king of Elam. And we made it clear that you know, this history, this history that the Bible talks about and these kings and people and so forth have long legs into the, the relative future. Again, I'm not going to get into it all here, but to think about when, it's, when the Bible says and locates a place, especially when it says the province of Elam or something like that, the better you know the history, the better you know of who these people were, what they were, and how they interacted with Israel and how God interacted with them and how they set up things for the plans of God, it's just much better to do that. So, for some reason, he knows in his vision that he's in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. So he gave you an idea of basically where he is in this vision. And in the vision, I was beside the Ule Canal. I don't know what that is. I never looked it up, but it's probably near the Caspian Sea or maybe south of that. But it's on the western side of what is now Iran, what was then Persia. And here we return to the Hebrew language again because... We now are getting, or Israelite-specific, as I said. So now we're out of the Aramaic and we're back into the Hebrew. We're back up about 15 years to the third year of Belshazzar's reign, where Daniel starts to tell of a vision which he saves until such a time as this. Daniel is in the land of Persia, the region of Persepolis, where Daniel lived the rest of his life and where his tomb is located. And again, history holds that Daniel actually did not go back with the captives to Jerusalem when they were allowed to go back by Cyrus the Mede. History holds he migrated north in the territory of Elam to the Caspian Sea. He lived there until he passed away. And why is that important? Because he was probably still teaching, and that's how the Magi later on knew what the Jews didn't about the indicator in the sky with the star of Messiah. And they traveled two years as the kingmakers they were to pay Jesus the king of the Jews their homage. And you know the story of the Magi. Well, those Magi's were Persian, and they were Zoroastrian. But they knew something even the Jews didn't have. They had to send, God had to send an angel for the Jews in the field to tell them that the sign of Messiah was in the sky. But these people who were pagans knew it, probably because Daniel settled in that area and was teaching and teaching and teaching, and then they kept teaching and teaching and teaching. Before you know it, when the time came for Christ, they still knew because they were handing this information down so that the Magi would know. And they actually traveled two years to see the, the birth of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. Interesting little fact. Here we return to the Hebrew language, as I said, and Daniel is going to start to tell a vision of which he saves until the time is this. Daniel is in the land of Persia, as you said, in that place, and continuing in verse 3 of Daniel chapter 8. So now that we have this topologically set, and historically set, I hope, he's saying now, I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns. I want you to picture these things in your mind because, again, we're now talking about the beginning of the bronze area of that statue, the Grecian Empire, as you see here, beginning in 330, which Alexander the Great really was the driver for. So think of this. 
ram with two horns standing beside the canal. The horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later or came up last. Interesting. I watched the ram. Think of the ram with these horns. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west, the north, and the south. There's no east here. No animal could stand against him. This was so powerful. Every way he charged, north, west, and south, no animal could stand against him. This was, again, the animal, nothing could stand against him, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, which if you look at the statue, they were now going to take over. So we know at the interface between the Babylonian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire, we know how that happened. Daniel told us. The handwriting was on the wall. Darius comes in, subverts the city, gets his men in there. They don't do anything until they're ready. And then when Belshazzar dies at night, all of a sudden they all just rise up and attack the city. They were among them. They didn't even know they were there through subversion. So now if we see the interface, now the Medo-Persian's kingdom, if you will, rule, reign, has to now segue out while the Grecian Empire begins to rise. And that's where we are right now at this plus. So how is that happening? Well, we see that this ram was actually the one that is starting to push against everything around it in those directions, and so it's going to push against the Medes and the Persians, which cannot withstand him. And none could rescue from his power, is what the scripture says. He did as he pleased and became great. The longer or greater horn would represent Cyrus the Mede, which we just talked about, who would have set the captives free to go back to Jerusalem. Cyrus the Persian, Darius was a Mede, and so these two horns are those two guys. We see that they hear then that the Persian eclipses the Medes in power. Continuing in verse 5. Now, as I was thinking about this, this is what Daniel's saying, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. Hmm. He's got to be running pretty fast. He came toward the two-horned ram that was defeating everything around it, I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram. This is a goat attacking a ram. It's interesting because I think rams are probably more powerful. But anyway, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. So it seems we have here yet another metaphor of separation. Good versus evil, clean versus unclean. These two horns cleaving somehow. Let's talk about this a little bit. These metaphor of separation. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 15 and see how the Bible interprets this for us. Because these two horns are really important. They mean two separate things, and there's a a diversion here. We're going to see more about that as we go along in the coming weeks here. But please turn to Genesis chapter 15, verse 9. Genesis chapter 15, verse 9. The Lord said to him, Abraham, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So we see again this duality, this metaphor of separation bring to me a goat and a ram oh by the way what did daniel just describe that he saw in his vision a goat fighting with a ram well back in genesis it's talking about god saying bring me a heifer a goat and a ram each three years old along with a dove and a young pigeon Abraham, or Abram, before he became Abraham, so it says here, Abram, in verse 10 of chapter 15 of Genesis, brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. So now we have this metaphor of separation in these breeds, 
of animals, and now we're physically separating them into halves and laying them out and making a path in between them. Do you see a thought developing here? The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Genesis 15, verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. Sounds familiar about the Israelites, right? And they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years, Egypt. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And God has done that to Egypt. We see it to Babylon. Well, we've seen it in different places. So this is amazing that he's showing us these things way back in Genesis. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. And don't you know, isn't that what happened, especially in Egypt? He said it was going to happen. Verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites have not yet reached its full measure. So there's a time component here for something to develop. Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between these pieces of the cleaved animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. This is the Abrahamic covenant. To your descendants, I will give this land. I'm going to read just a couple more things here and then we're going to wrap up. With this in mind, let's read Matthew 25, verses 31 to 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. I've detailed to you because it's important to understand when the Bible speaks of separation, as it does, it's important to understand how it speaks of it throughout the rest of Scripture so you understand how God is thinking and what he's talking about. Let's go quickly back. We only have about a couple minutes left here. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 7. Going back to this ram and this goat. The ram was powerless to stand against him, the goat. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him. And none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power his large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. So think of that. We already know that the ram represents the kings of Media and Persia, Darius and Cyrus. But what does the goat and its horns represent? Let's move down to Daniel chapter 8, verse 20, because it's going to interpret it for us right here. I think we'll wrap up this little concept here. So we're going to know. It's going to tell us right here. The two-horned ram, this is Daniel chapter 8, verse 20. The two-horned ram, horns of equal length, that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. It's telling us right there. Wow. We didn't have to figure that one out. It was right there. It was a little further down, but it was right there. Now it's saying... The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. Okay, so we know what the gram and the goat are. It says it right here. And the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace that one that was broken off represent four kingdoms. 
that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. The goat clearly denotes Greece, and the first and greatest horn, or king, is Alexander the Great. The capital city of Greece in that day was called Aegis, and Aegis means, believe it or not, when translated, the city of the goat. So I want to read you something in Greek mythology real quick, because this, this factors in, it's so cool. The Aegis was a weapon of Zeus and Athena. Now, you should know who these are, especially Zeus represents Satan, the head god, right? It possessed the power to terrify and disperse the enemy or to protect friends. The Aegis was usually described as a garment made of goat skin. How do you like that? Slung over the shoulder or as a piece of armor. The Aegis of Athena was a breastplate covered with, you guessed it, goat skin and bordered with snakes there's something to do with satan here too bearing in the center the head of medusa now if you remember what the head of medusa is that was the goddess with the hair that was actually snakes and if you looked into her eyes you would immediately uh, freeze i think i think that's what i mean anyway, you don't want to look into her eyes but her hair was actually snakes medusa was oh here it is i think i have it right here medusa once was a beautiful woman but she offended athena who changed her hair into snakes and made her face so hideous that all who looked at her would turn to stone. Hey, wait a minute. Isn't that what happened with Lot's wife? Something like that. Alexander also had a son, and his name was Aegis. He named him the son of the goat. Do you see anything going on here? It's like they know what God is saying about them. Greek mythology also had a satyr god named Pan, half man and half goat who played a pipe made of reeds called a syrinx or pan pipe. Anyway, I think I'm going to stop there. We're going to talk more about uh, Alexander the Great. We may even read some of Josephus's account of him next time. I hope this was profitable to you. I hope you see how it's so full of history and richness. When we study the scriptures, we study the history around it. We study what the symbology means. And how much you can learn about God's plan, he wants us to know. And so we do. Well, I think we're going to end here. I hope that I'm doing God's word justice for all of us because, like I say, and like you know, we are at the time when all of this is being fulfilled. So is it a coincidence we're studying Daniel like right now? I don't think so. Hope you enjoy it. If you have any questions at all, please feel free to email at any time. I will answer email. Blessings to you. Bye-bye now.